Good morning. It's good to be with you. It's good to see you. Some of you I know, some of you I don't know this morning. And uh, we're, we're together in one room uh, considering how God uniquely nourishes and feeds his people. So in some ways, there's going to be some preaching to the choir. Like if you consider yourself a part of the family of God, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this is probably going to hit home. If you're still kind of considering the claims of Jesus in some ways, uh, it, it may make sense and it, it may not. But what we're doing as a church together uh, over the coming weeks is, is trying to discover um, who it is we are and what target we are aiming at. You'll see on the screen behind me, you see this illustration of a tree, and the title of this series is called Present Future. And so the tree on the left under the word present, that's not a sick tree. That's just an immature tree. It's in bloom and not fully leafed out, not fully bearing fruit. But what we're aiming for as a family is that we would be on the right side of that picture. That's the future that we're aiming at, that we'd be a flourishing, thriving, full, and fruitful people. So Present Future is a series we spent forever in um, the Sermon on the Mount and even longer than forever, it seems like, in the first four chapters of Matthew, and now we're just taking a bit of a time out. We're saying, hey, we need to align. We want to pull in the same direction as a community. And so we need to, uh, to rehearse some of our values, what it is that we gather around, who it is that we are as a church, and then explore some of our, our structures for, for leadership and for congregational life um, after that. So present future is all about defining our target. It's all about trying to understand and come to an understanding of what it is that we're aiming at so that we can pull together in a unified direction rather than just kind of all going our own way, marching to the beat of our own drum, so to speak. So I'm going to share something with you this morning that's kind of a, a big vision statement, but you can see on the banner behind me here, this is like, this is the summary form of our purpose statement. We exist to saturate the inland Northwest, so local and the nations with the good news of Jesus, with the good news of our glorious King. But what we've been doing, kind of behind the scenes, what I've been doing along with Trevor, just trying to wordsmith and, and just uh, trying to pull together kind of the ethos of various ministries and, and what we've been about as a church family, trying to, uh, I, I want a more robust vision statement. So I don't, need, I don't need you to necessarily remember or take a ton of this away other than um, the, just the gist behind it. So go ahead and throw the, the next slide up there around our, our who, what, where, when. So pass that one. You'll see some little, there we go, defining the target. This statement here uh, explains some of why we, why All of Life Church exists, what our purpose is, and then also where we carry it out. Now, any time that we're, we're chasing after a target or a purpose in life, you need a Why? And we have a why, but it's not, it, it, it's not explicitly named in that summary vision statement. Here's our why. We exist because of King Jesus and for King Jesus. We exist because of our Father and for our Father. We exist because of the Holy Spirit at work in his world and for the Holy Spirit. To him be glory to God, our triune God, be glory and honor forever and ever. There's this statement in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, that says, For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory and honor forever and ever. 
And that gives us some purpose. You'll see this word, therefore. Therefore. Out of that, our purpose is to saturate the inland northwest and the nations with the good news of our glorious king. Some of the where is embedded there too. The inland northwest, local, this family, our region, our city, but also to the nations. God is at work in the world that he has created. And so we want to be a part of that. We want to be a part and play our part, maybe is a better way to say it, with some of the relationships that he's with us and is giving us. Now, who is this going to include? Next slide. Who is this going to include? Who are we and how can we do this? I want to try to, to at least bring some definition and, and get granular in some ways. We, we want to saturate the in the Northwest. Well, how's that going to happen? Through the formation of wholehearted disciples and life-giving relationships. Okay, what that means is wholehearted, fully devoted disciples of Jesus. We're all in with him. We see that he has been risen from the dead. He has literally beat death, is alive, and is reigning. And we want to be a part of what he is doing and speaking and the ways that he is moving in his world. We want to be, we want to be joined to him. We want to be a wholehearted, all-in disciple of his. Well, do we do that in isolation? Do we do that alone? Or... Are we shaped uniquely and wonderfully in communities of people? Think families, friend groups, small groups, church community, through life-giving relationships. We want to embed ourselves and be a church that's about like finding our way and following Jesus as a wholehearted disciple through life-giving relationships. Now, now how are we going to do that? Here's kind of like baseline vision for how we want to saturate the inland northwest as wholehearted disciple-making disciples. We want every single person that we come across, every man, woman, and child that Jesus gives us, draws us in here, draws us into our, draws into our communities, or sends us to in our, in our networks of friends and relationships. We want every single person that you encounter, that we encounter, we want to see them for who they are. We want to seek to know them want to seek to love them, and by the grace and opportunities that God gives us, gospel them well. That is to say, bring the good news of our glorious King to bear in some way that lightens their load and lightens their soul and helps them find their way. This is what we want to be about as a church. We'll talk about this. We'll tease this out a bit more in coming weeks, but I want you to know, I want you to see this. Like This is what is kind of like, this is what is governing behind the scenes, kind of what we're saying yes to, what we're saying no to, what we're doing as a church family. And it all circles back up to the why. Because we exist because of and for King Jesus, our Father, and the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, two weeks ago in, our, in this vision series called Present Future, we, we, we kind of started with our very first value statement. Very first value statement is on this banner right here, the gospel. Jesus' gospel, his good news, is for all of life. Uh, it, Jesus himself, his perfection, his death, his resurrection, and now his ascension as he rules and reigns over all things as the, as the crucified but resurrected king, he is at the center of, of our life together as a church family. We orbit around him. You orbit around him. I orbit around him. We do not orbit around personalities. We do not orbit around programs. We do not orbit even around mission. 
We orbit around Him. What He tells us to do, we do. Who He tells us to be, we want to lean into that. Jesus' gospel is for all of life. If you want to listen to that message, go ahead. It's two weeks back. You can find it wherever you find podcasts. Last week, as a response, we kind of have been shifting some of the orders even of these value statements. Um, a response when the, when the good news of our glorious King comes home to us, our natural response oftentimes is two things. It's joy and generosity. Like there's a kind of lightness of soul that occurs, a lightness of mind, a, a gratitude that wells up within us. It creates a kind of joy that we want to give away. And we don't just want to give away our joy, though we do. We want to also like, we want to be a blessing because we have been loved and blessed incredibly by our God who lives. And so joy and generosity is a natural response when the gospel comes home, whether for the first time bringing us into the family or for the 600th time moving us on in his family. This week, how do we live? How do we order? What like functionally governs us? We live by prayer and God's word. We live by the scriptures and prayer. You'll see an icon on the screen. That's a Bible. That hand is not on the Bible, like taking an oath. That hand is supposed to be open-handed. The open hands of prayer, empty hands of prayer, dependence. We live by the scriptures and by open, prayerful, dependent hands, which shapes our heart, shapes who we are together. So here's kind of my big idea this morning. Scripture and prayer are a means that God uses to form us into Christ-likeness. They're a primary means. You'll see a text on the screen, Acts chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 42. Now, Acts is a book written by a medical doctor named Luke. It's a sequel to what he wrote, Luke's gospel. He wrote an orderly account of Jesus' life. And then Acts is the account of the early church, how the early church came to be. Don't, like, if you're familiar with the church and you know all this, great. Don't roll your eyes at me, but listen. Like, try to listen with a fresh mind and a, and, and a fresh heart. The Spirit of God has been working in the church at Jesus' resurrection and after his resurrection. And Jesus gives his disciples a command to go back to Jerusalem and to wait until they're clothed with power from on high. And then this, this Holy Spirit comes, shakes their lives incredibly, physically shakes their surrounding. They begin to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And about 3,000 people like he, he activates their hearts and regenerates them in such a way that they all like rush the doors of the kingdom of God at one time. And boom, like this church rises up, the people of God rise up out of a small band of about 120. They start to live life together. It's chaos, but it's good chaos. And then Luke tells us in this orderly account, he says what their life is like, and he offers the summary statement. You've already probably read it on the screen, Luke 2, or Acts 2.42. He describes, he narrates what the early church's life together, what it was like. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? The apostles' teaching is the teaching that the apostles got from Jesus. They are passing on the doctrine, the truth, the reality that they got from Jesus living with him and also what they received 40 days after they lived with him in community for 40 days after his resurrection. He continued to teach them and unfold the scriptures to them. And the apostles are, are orally passing on this teaching and the whole church is gathering around it on the first day of every week, a Sunday. 
They're gathering to be taught in the temple courts and in people's homes. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is um, synonymously communion, but also community around a table, shared life, hospitality together. Not only that, but they devoted themselves to the prayers. They devoted themselves as a praying people. So here is the, the fundamental question that I want to tackle today. What role does Scripture and prayer play in our lives as a community? as the family of God. What role does it play? Why do we keep coming back to the Bible and prayer over and over and over and over again? Now, whenever I bring this forward, I can almost hear and feel like half the room kind of groan at it, like, oh, the thing I can't ever seem to do. And, and we internally, you know, like shut down and this wave of condemnation uh, speaks to us. Others of you, you're like, yeah, I'm in. I believe it, and functionally, there's little sustainable hunger at times to make it a consistent part of my reality, to, to nourish myself on the scriptures, maybe because I can't understand it or I just forget it, or prayer, like it's just, it's, it's just something that we find so hard to give ourselves to in regular discipline oftentimes. Regardless, you guys, consider me the energizer bunny on this point. Like I'm going to keep beating the drum like Bible and prayer, Scripture and prayer, Scripture and prayer. It's a similar drum that the church historically has beat for thousands of years. We return to be fed by God's words, which we'll get into why that's so good for us and, and directed and guided by prayer. Scripture and prayer are a means to growing up into godliness. That's what, that's, that's, this exists as food for the soul, a means of growing up into godliness. For followers of Jesus in the new covenant era, after Jesus, scripture and prayer are a means of growing into Christ-likeness. And Christ-likeness is the goal of our salvation. The goal of our salvation is not to avoid hell. That's not the goal of your salvation or the goal of mine. The goal of salvation is to be joined to God. It's to be reunited with the living God. It's to be reunited with our maker, with our creator, with the one who is the lover of our souls, the sustainer of our souls. That's the goal of salvation. Sin has corrupted humanity and cut us off from life with him. And Jesus has come in order to do something with that. Like Paul prayed earlier to, to perfectly execute justice at the cross on his son and to thereby give us mercy and opportunity to be reconciled to him. Once reconciled to our father through the son, the father's will, our father in heaven, his will is that we would follow Jesus and conform both our hearts and our way of life to Jesus. So Ephesians 4, the apostle Paul writes, and he writes to the church and he, he, he yearns for the church to grow up into full mature, maturity, into the body, into Christ, who is head, who's the head of his body, the church. That's the goal of your salvation. It's to become God is making you and I, those of us who follow Jesus, he's making us more like Christ. Really, like, slowly at times. Painfully so. I can't feel it. I can't see it. He is at work in us, bringing us um, to this sanctification. 
That's a word, a fancy word that just means to be made more and more like Christ. So uh, why do, what do we mean when we say we live by Scripture and prayer as a church family? Like, if my body ultimately lives by food, nutrition, exercise, sleep, and my mind uh, comes to life through observing the world around me and interpreting meaning and navigating various environments that I find myself in, in life, learning, then we could begin to acknowledge that our hearts, they too come to life. They live through and by engagement with God. We're created for Him. I come back to this quote all the time because it's so rich. It's from uh, uh, one of the early church fathers in the fourth century in northern Africa, a guy named Augustine. And Augustine says this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. We're going to be scrambling and clawing and striving and wringing our hands as humans looking for meaning until we find our rest in the one who we were made for. Have you ever spent so much time with somebody that you could accurately predict what they were going to do before they did it? We have, right? I have, you have. You spent so much time that you begin to act like them, or talk like them, or take on mannerisms that they have. Like this is true of me. Like if I spend a lot of time, I mean, there are even people like if you if you move to another uh, country or another state with like a real strong accent or a drawl, like you'll take it on. You start to talk like that. I know people like I'm like you're from Spokane. You're not from Texas. Why are you talking like a Texan? Because they've lived there for 15 or 20 or 25 years. It's the same for all of us, right? If we spend a lot of time with people, we'll take on accents, we'll take on phrases, we'll take on mannerisms, facial expressions. Why? We're formed by who we spend time with. And the more that you spend time with a person, the more that you form to, to one another. The more you spend time with a community, the more you blend. There's actual neuroscience behind all of this called mirror new neurons. We imitate the people around us. Um, we know uh, this. For better or worse, the families that we grew up in, I'm going to touch a nerve with some of you right now, played a huge part in how we see the world. They play a huge part in how we see the world. For better or for worse. Like some of us have been shaped by really dysfunctional families, and now we're living a functional and healthy life. But so much of our pursuit of health has actually come from the dysfunctional family that we grew up in. And so we're rejecting that and we're pursuing a new future. So many of us have grown up in really functional, good, healthy families, and we are living legacies of what was formed in us early on. And there's a million other scenarios in between too. For better or for worse, we were discipled by our family systems. Disciples aren't just followers of Jesus. Disciple at its root means learner. A disciple is somebody who learns from another person, is discipled, is apprenticed to another person. Now, one of the metaphors that the, uh, the, the New Testament uses for the church is family. So here's what I want to be really clear on. The church, whenever I say church or you hear church in and around these spaces, the church is not a building that we go to. It is not an event we attend. The church is the family to which we belong. 
That's what the word in our New Testament, in Greek, the word, anytime you see the word church, it's coming from a word, ekklesia. And the word ekklesia means assembly or gathered people. Church is a people. It's not a thing that you go to. So you don't go to family. Who says that? I'm going to go to family now. We don't say that. We're going to go be with our family. Church is a family. Now, we've got a known, I'm sorry, we, we have a God who is known as our father, but who perfectly exhibits the kind of care that we need from both father and mother. He is a perfect parent to us. He perfectly parents us. So he disciples us and he nurtures us. He equips us and he teaches us. He provides for us and he protects us. Additionally, in this family that the Bible describes as the church, we have one another who the scriptures, they, they declare that we're brothers and sisters. Whether we like it or not, we found ourselves in a family system. And now we got some people around. Some of them are a blessing. Some of them feel like more like curse. We're together brothers and sisters in this family system. And whichever family system that we live with and we participate in will have a profound formational effect on us. You know this, like if you've grown up in a church community, a church family, some of us have grown up in church communities that have been super dysfunctional, hard-nosed, they've wounded us, they've missed the gospel completely, and, and we have... Maybe they haven't. Maybe just our experience with them was poor or, or there's a million scenarios I could talk about. We've been wounded. Many of us have been wounded by churches that we grew up within. Others have experienced incredible growth and maturity through their church families. So uh, here's, here's what I'm kind of driving at. As we navigate life as a family, we need to know a couple of things. So um, we're not going to just jettison the word family. Even if all of life doesn't feel like your family, even if it's been quite some struggle, we're not going to jettison the word family. Why? Because it's how God describes his people, and it's an ideal that we're aiming at. So we're not there. We may be in bloom, but we're not in full flower. We're not totally bearing fruit in this area. We, not, we are not yet who God is creating us to be, and we're going to stick with it. We're going to work the plan. We're going to follow the path. We are going to aim at this ideal, and we're going to mess it up. So, like, we can fail. We just can't suck. Like, that's like... That's kind of what we're aiming at. We're going to get it wrong. We just, we don't want to suck at it. Now, as we're aiming at this ideal, um, we need to know a couple of things. As we're aiming at the ideal of family, we need, to, we need to know about the one who fathers us. We need to know objective realities about who he is, what he's like. Not just our father, but our redeemer, teacher, friend, savior, Jesus our comforter and counselor, empower, life giver, the Holy Spirit. We need to know about God, but we also need to know our God. We need to know what is true of him, and we need to have personal encounter with him. We live by scripture and prayer because scripture teaches us the reality and the ways of our Father who is there, and prayer helps us in, so profound, in, in profound ways to know him. So to have true friendship, both of these, you need to know about, but you also need to know. You have to have real experience. I can know all day long about a famous person and have their posters all over my wall and be a big fanboy, but if I don't know that person, I don't actually have a relationship with them. 
So when I try to answer this question, and I'm going to just like touch on it, like I'm not going to answer it fully for you, but I want to I want to give you some new categories to think in. What role does Scripture play in our relationship with God? What role does Scripture play in our relationship with God? When we or I say the word Scripture or say the word Bible, it's easy for us to um, picture a collection of ancient writings and just kind of lump them all together. But the reality of, of, of this is that it was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written by over 40, by 40 authors. There's 66 different collections of writings here. It was written over the, a period of about 1,500 years from three continents. It's incredibly complex, and yet it is one unified story telling, revealing who God is. So what the scriptures are not only in their limited form is just a a bunch of rules and regulations telling us how we're supposed to live. It's not a collection of inspirational quotes that are meant to like pick us up when we're feeling down. It's not love letters from God or a roadmap for life only. Those things are true kind of in their places. But if we describe the scriptures like that, we are minimizing the reality of what we have in our possession and what we have available to us. In a nutshell, the scripture ultimately is a revelation of who God is. The scriptures are meant to show us him. They're meant to show us what he's like. They're meant to show us how he works in the world. They're meant to show us how he has worked in the world, how he will work in the world, what he's done, what he is doing. And secondarily, the scriptures uncover who we are and what ails us. Secondarily, it unfolds how we can know him and be reconciled to him. I'm not saying that's unimportant. It's incredibly important. But the scriptures are primarily a revelation of who God is bringing us into this encounter with him, the God who is there. It also, the scriptures also disclose how we can truly be satisfied and how we can honor God. So that's all, it's all like here. And in the scriptures, there's a a host of different literary styles. There's narrative. I'm in seminary right now on a deep dive in the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and it is blowing. I was just in Portland on on Friday, and they lectured for eight hours on Exodus. You might say, that sounds terrible. It was wonderful. It was fascinating. I feel like I have a pretty good handle on the Bible. When I show up there, I'm like, I don't know a thing. I don't know anything. And it's not confusing. It's like layered and rich and connected. And my mind and my soul, as I am getting into Exodus, this book that I haven't really known much about, I'm living on the top waters of an ocean, apparently. Like as I am, as I'm discovering these truths within, it's making my heart just swell and sing at the beauty of God and his revelation because it is ordered and magnificent. And like I've said, layered and complicated and simple, and I can expend a lifetime of trying to understand and put it all together and get there and not get there. Keeps me going. Okay, you just saw a piece of my heart singing there, right? So there's, there's uh, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch's Greek, Torah's Hebrew word for the first five books of your Old Testament. 
uh, they are um, a lot of narrative. There's some law and legal language in it, but mostly, there's poetry too and song, but mostly there is narrative. Narrative is telling the story of what God has been up to in his world. The scriptures are filled with proclamation as well, which largely tells the story of what God has done or what he will do. There's also a lot of instruction and command in scriptures, which give us the standard of what God wants and what he requires of us. And there's poetry and there's prophecy and there's proverb, all of these forms of revelation in scripture as well. Here's the bottom line. It's a quote from a guy named David Mathis in a book called Habits of Grace. He says, the one who created us and sustains us moment by moment has expressed himself to us us and human words, and it's vital that we listen. That's the reality. That's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm using all those words to try to get to his point. She says way better. It's vital that we listen. As you and I continue to listen through God's word, actually to God, through his word, it's going to have a shaping and formational effect on us. Sometimes for me, just the practice of listening to God's word, reading his word, encountering his word, is the difference between like functional atheism in my day and living like a Christian. Why? Because I forget him constantly, constantly. And I need something that's objective that I can return to on a regular basis to encounter his work in the world, to encounter a revelation of who he is, to, to when I don't trust him, when I doubt him, when I'm moving away from him in my soul. I might be doing all the motions like as a pastor, but there are times where I'm just like moving away from him in my soul. Coming back to his word helps to recenter me and to draw me and to trust him again when I just am filled and beset by doubt. When we make a habit of listening to God through his word, through scripture, the habit of remembering and considering his ways and his will works itself into our ways and our will. So we're spending time with him. We're shaped by him. Jesus would quote Deuteronomy um, in Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew's gospel. He's, he's going toe-to-toe. He's in conflict with Satan in the wilderness. And he quotes Deuteronomy and he, he quotes Moses and he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God or that comes from the mouth of God. What Jesus is getting at is that humans aren't sustained only by nutrition and calories. The soul is sustained by every word, every promise that comes from the mouth of God. David Mathis again. Um, I want this quote to like settle in on you. It's at the bottom there of the big words. At the end of the day, there's simply no replacement for finding a regular time and place, blocking out distractions, putting your nose in the text, and letting your heart and your mind be led and captured and, here it is, thrilled by God himself communicating to us in his objective written words. If we'll give in, you guys, ladies, if we'll give in, We'll choose to, if we'll choose to order our day around Scripture, being, cop, being captivated by a knowledge of God can lead us into deeper fellowship with Him. It, it can. It doesn't always. And it, but it can. And that's what it's positioned there for. And so I, I want to try to answer the question in one way. How can we practically move in this direction? Okay, like, I get it, but give me a tool. Give me a way. Give, like, show me how I can 
do this. I have a counselor. His, I think everybody should have a counselor. His name is Rich Plass, and he's written a book along with a co-author named Jim Cofield called The Relational Soul. And The Relational Soul is a book all, uh, it's, it's a, a book that basically shows us how human, how, how we are designed for and defined by relationships. We're designed for relationship with God and defined by our relationship with God. And we're designed for and defined by our relationships with one another. So he tries to make the connection and how we are relational beings created for relationship with God and others. Now, toward the end of the relational soul, one of the core spiritual practices that, uh, that, that Rich and Jim recommend is something called the contemplative reading of Scripture. Now, before you get all weirded out, like I'm going crazy on your mystical or Catholic or something like that because you've got some baggage in your history, that's okay. Like, I'm not trying to tap on that wound. But I need you to hear what is contemplative reading of Scripture. It's contemplative reading of Scripture. That's what I mean. We're contemplating who God is and what He's saying in His Word. We're meditating on it. Now, this is a quote at length, and I'm going to read it from uh, Rich Plass. He says, This skill of contemplative reading of Scripture plays a vital part in the maturing of the soul. Do you want a mature soul? Me too. Most of our training and practice of reading, just reading in general, in our educational experience has been for the purpose of mastering material and increasing our knowledge and thus control. So we read for mastery of the text. This is why so many people get so discouraged by reading the scriptures because I don't remember what I read. Me either. So I got to move all kinds of words to find the sentences that matter and change me. We so often get frustrated and discouraged because we don't retain all that much because we're functionally reading for mastery. He goes on to say, we've done this kind of reading for so long that we believe reading for mastery is the only kind of reading there is. It isn't. Contemplative reading of Scripture is structured so that in... So contemplate, now he's in contrast. Contemplative reading of Scripture is structured so that instead of gaining mastery of the text, we're mastered by the text. Instead of increasing our competency, we are encouraged to surrender, rather, in humility. Instead of reading the text, we hope to be read by the text. So contemplative reading of Scripture is the journey of placing our story into God's story. The goal of contemplative reading is not the amassing of knowledge, but the reinterpretation of our story so that it is congruent with the truth of God's story. I'm almost done with the quote. Through contemplative reading, we long to encounter God's truth. Our souls often resist truth because, so notice, we long to encounter God's truth. Our souls often resist truth because we're self-protective and we're self-preserving. The thing that can mature us then is a deep trust in the living God, not in ourself. Such trust makes the soul more open, more receptive to what God has to say. Reality is created by God's Word, and God's Word illuminates the path to what is life's truest reality. That's where we want to live. The more we're grasped by the Word and the truth made flesh, now he's talking about the incarnation, the person of Jesus Christ, the more we're grasped by the reality of who he is, the greater will be our capacity to engage in deep, abiding, relational intimacy. The more we encounter the Jesus of the Scriptures, the more we mature. Jesus would say, what? 
you, rebuking the Pharisees, you look into the scriptures because in them you think that you might have life, yet you refuse to come to me. That's what Rich Plass is getting at here. We encounter the living God through the reading of his scriptures. Now, I'm going to throw a table up on the screen, a, a, a picture of four different kinds of reading here in just a moment. Um, all four of these are good. It's that white box. Do you see that, Sean? Is it not coming? There it is. It's delaying. These are four different kinds of good approaches to Scripture. We should, like, we should hold all of them in some tension. So from factual to contemplative. So in the bold there, you'll see factual reading of Scripture, theological, devotional, and then also contemplative. In factual reading of Scripture, we should do this. We're looking for information. We're trying to learn truth. We're trying to learn propositions. We want to know. We're motivated. We're, we're firing on knowing the truth of God. And we also read for theological information. We're looking to be inspired by what? Promises revealed and, and, and believed. We want to see how God is working in the world, what he's like. We want to trust him. We want to explore the ways that he's revealed himself. So we're, 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 we're debating and we're like going back and forth trying to understand texts. This is good and wonderful. Devotional reading of scripture is looking for some motivation, and, um, some correction, some pick-me-up. We're looking for principles to live by because we do want to live the life of God. It's good. And oftentimes we miss contemplative reading, which is aimed at, change and transformation by encountering the presence of God through his holy word. We want to enjoy him. How much, don't raise your hand, but like it's a rhetorical question. Like when you're reading the scriptures, do you find yourself enjoying God? Just enjoying being with him understanding that he's here with you. He's helping through his spirit. He's helping you to understand the scriptures. Like I often miss just enjoying him because I'm in the pursuit of facts and theology and inspiration. And, and what Rich Plass is aiming at with the contemplative reading of scripture is that we'd slow down and we'd rehearse and we'd encounter him. Now, I'm gonna just summarize kind of where I've been. Living by scripture means that we bring ourselves to it so regularly that it becomes a primary formational force over us. We want to be mastered by the Scriptures, taught by the Scriptures, shaped by the Scriptures, humbled by the Scriptures, read by the Scriptures, formed by them. Now, what role does prayer play in forming us? I'll be more brief on this point, but while the Bible, while the Scriptures often lead us to knowledge about God, which is good, I'm not talking down on it, Prayer very intentionally moves us into fellowship with him. Prayer very intentionally moves us into fellowship with God. Prayer is time spent in God's presence. That's what prayer is. It's time spent in his presence. Moments, minutes, hours, prayer is time spent in his presence. It can happen in the contemplative reading of scripture, contemplative encounters with his word, it can happen in any, prayer can happen in any other experience that you and I have in life, right? It can happen in silence. So we're just like, just recognizing that, that God is present with us. We're seeking to hear from him. It can happen in simple statements like, I love you, Lord. It can happen through request. 
And I don't mean to be like irreverent, and I'm not being irreverent, but I'm like, I'm making my point here. Prayer can happen in the bathroom, and it can happen anywhere else that we find ourselves in life. Why? Because his presence is everywhere. He is with his people. He's the God who dwells with us. The prophet Jeremiah, speaking what the Lord told him to say, says this, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? So I'm close and I'm far. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Trying to make my point that the presence of God is everywhere. The next time that you, I'm switching gears here a little bit. The next time that you read the book of Acts, I I want, um, it's the, Acts is the story of how the church began. I talked about this at the very beginning of this message. When you read the book of Acts, I want you to consider this. Stay on the lookout for how often and why the disciples prayed. Just like I've done this in my Bible. You might consider doing it in yours. I just took a yellow highlighter and I just like prayed. Anytime that they're praying and seeking direction and guidance, I just, kind of, I just marked it through Acts. And you'll start to see like the frequency of the disciples humbling themselves dependently and seeking guidance from the Spirit of God. Was, it's amazing how often they submitted themselves in prayer. This discovery, it, literally, it changed my life. And I think that it'll change yours when it begins to dawn on you just how vital prayer is. Before um, Jesus' ascension uh, to to rule and reign over all things, which he's doing right now. In between his resurrection and his ascension, he spent about 40 days with the disciples. And right as he was going um, going away from them, he told them, he gave them instructions to go back into Jerusalem and wait until you're clothed with power from on high. And then he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. So go and wait. Now, the disciples, they obey him. They go back to Jerusalem and Acts chapter 1 verse 14 says, what? It says they devoted themselves, find it for yourself. It says they devoted themselves with one accord. They're all together in community. They devoted themselves to prayer. And then a little bit later, they're trying to figure out, man, this Judas guy, he sold Jesus out. He went and, 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 and killed himself. And now we've got 11 disciples. And Jesus apparently gave pretty strict orders that there needed to be 12. And so they're wondering, like, who is going to be the one who replaces Judas? And they pray and they seek which one it is. And he confirmed for them that it would be Matthias. When the crowds respond favorably to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, they say, what do we have to do to be saved? What are we supposed to do now? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What can that be other than an urge from Peter to them to pray? You cannot come into the family of God. You cannot repent of sin apart from prayer. Like it is conversation with God saying, you're holy, I'm not. You've done what I cannot do. I believe, help, save, rescue. What is that other than prayer? As opposition to the church intensified in the storyline, the narrative of Acts, The disciples pray for courage to speak God's word with all boldness. Things are getting chaotic and crazy and they need to appoint some new leaders and they're not exactly sure what that all looks like. Many people think they were were commissioning deacons in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, verse 6, they 
pray and commission these deacons to service on behalf of the church. When they consider where God is directing them with the truth of the gospel, they pray. That's like what Paul and Barnabas and others were doing as they began to plant the church in Philippi and the church in Thessalonica. They pray, these disciples do as a means to praise God, as an appeal to uh, God's supernatural healing and power in moments of need. They pray for the well-being of their leaders. They pray for their opponents and enemies, the stiff-necked among them, whether Romans or whether Jews or whether magicians or whoever else. Like They're consistently praying and asking God to intervene. Communal and individual prayer are a distinguishing mark of the early church's life together. Here's where I'll close. Though 2,000 years have gone between us and the early church, nothing has changed. Everything has changed, and yet nothing has changed in the economy of God. We have grace in the sense that we have God's word before us so that we can see narrative, and we can see the storyline, and we can receive this apostle's teaching. But he, in the same way that they were dependently prayerful, wants you and I, too, to lean on him prayerfully. Dependent prayer is still how we find our way. It's still how we live. It's still how we make decisions. It's still how we wrestle with loving our enemies and loving our friends and our family. Feeding our souls on God's revelation of of himself in scripture and living dependently through prayer is the pattern for all churches and all times and all places to follow. And we're not gonna depart from it. We're not awesome at it. We're leaning in that direction. I'll even commend Trevor and Whitney and every other Saturday night at the hub, just a time of like song and prayer. It's a time of seeking. It's a time of consecrating. That just means like setting ourselves apart and humble repentance and rejoicing that Jesus Christ is Lord and is guiding us. Help, help, help. Both scripture and prayer forge a new identity in us. Uh, and, and as they do, as we feed on them, as they nourish our souls, they, they have this effect of stripping away our self-protectiveness and our self-trust and replacing both with newfound confidence in Christ. We can entrust ourselves to him who empowers us, who directs us, who sends us as his people forward on his mission. But it cannot happen apart from deep engagement with God through scripture and prayer. Closing sentences. One aspect that the mission of, of one aspect of the mission of God for us is to love one another deeply. It's not just like those folks out there who don't yet know him, who aren't yet called into the family. Part of our mission given by Jesus is to love one another really, really well. We're called to welcome one another as Christ Jesus has welcomed us. And so next week, by way of just foreshadowing, that's what we're going to emphasize. Like we're aimed at, the ideal has not been met, and we continue to aim at the ideal of practicing the one another's in community. We pray with me. Father, we, uh, we, we, we need you. Um, that's a song that we are about to sing in just a moment. We need you. Every hour, we need you. And we don't see it. I don't see it. And you're kind and generous with me and with us, continuing to just form us over time, knowing that we're slowpoke humans, just how we are. So I resonate with 
the Apostle Paul, who says, who's going to save me from this body of death? Thanks be to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're kind. You've given us a revelation of you. We don't have to paw our way or claw our way or wring our hands trying to figure out who you are. You have disclosed yourself in written objective words. Thank you. We can trust it. It's not just originated in human minds. I'm seeing in insane ways just how you have ordered the scriptures and it makes my heart swell with confidence. Shape us into a praying people by your spirit, we pray. Uh, we need you because we resist. Like functional atheism is the way for us. Dependent prayer is hard. So help us, lead us, cause dependence. In Jesus' name, amen.